Yeah, okay. What did you say? Part three, do you mean what you covered last week? Uh, part three, I sent out an email with it attached. Oh, okay. And uh, so, okay. Um, uh, good evening. Welcome to Gideon Warrior Network. We are taking up uh, Open Fellowship here tonight in the book of Hosea once again. Uh, I have titled the series of messages or fellowships that we're doing uh, as Hosea, Prophet of the Greatest Love Story of the Ages. And last week I sent out part three. I went ahead and did part three because part one and two were pretty much introductory in nature, and it covered a wide range of biblical identity of God's people Israel. And it may be slightly discombobulated because I didn't have all my notes completely together. Uh, we just kind of started into it uh, two weeks ago and and uh, uh, had some thoughts about it, but it didn't have everything really organized. And really, once again, it relies so much that on on the understanding of who biblical Israel is that I felt it was necessary to go through and do what I titled betrothal, marriage, rebetrothal, and marriage. Um, it's very significant, and I just had one tell me that it was um, at least a very, uh, and while, while, while much was known of it, it was uh, encapsulated and concise in terms of, you know, bringing it back to mind, uh, putting it together in a kind of a cohesive manner. So that was the objective and that was the idea with part three. And part three has been uploaded and I sent it out on an email because I was going to basically use that as part three and then get into part four here this evening. So uh, in that part three, that's, I think, a pretty good, uh, again, introductory piece uh, regarding biblical Israel, and I think that will help a lot uh, to solidify in people's minds why we're even having a conversation regarding Israel, because this series of fellowships is dealing with Hosea, and as I indicated from the title of, of the series, uh, is Hosea prophet to um, <laughs> and I'm drawing a blank on my own title prophet of the greatest love story of the ages prophet of the greatest love story of the ages because I believe that in Hosea is really the only not the only one Ezekiel is 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 right there as well but Hosea seems to really encapsulate so much of the actual love story. And I think that this love story is so essential to an understanding about God's people in Israel that without it, I really don't know how one can make any sense of anything in the biblical record um, as it pertains to Israel. So I think it's, it's definitely necessary and I hope that it's going to be edifying and remain edifying for those that continue to uh, 
to listen to the archives that, that can't join us here. So we've got a few people on the fellowship this evening, and we've got some that are going to be joining later if it all works out. Uh, they've indicated so. So I wanted to get into part four, and the verse that we're on in Hosea is verse three. We've really made it far. We've had uh, three uh, fellowships, and we've made it to verse three. <laughs> so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, which conceived and bare him a son. Now, let's stop there, because we do want to talk about this here a bit. Um, Gomer, the name, means complete or accomplish. So Gomer, therefore, is the completion or the accomplishment of something. Um, it could be that it's the completion of Israel's whoredom. Uh, it could be that it's the accomplishment of the plan of Yahweh. Um, it could be that his tolerance, Yahweh's tolerance, is complete. So I think it has a number of applications, and I just thought I would share with you the, the name meaning of Gomer. So um, that's all I really have for us with regards to verse 3. Hosea verse 4, call him Jezreel. For a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. Uh, I'm going to go off my notes and get back to the scripture so I can read the whole verse. Um, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. All right, right there in that scripture, there is a load of things to unpack. First of all, uh, while... Uh, the name Jezreel, uh, you know what? I don't believe I even looked up that name Jezreel. If, Jeremiah, if you want to look up the name Jezreel or Isaac, why well, you guys can uh, do that. Um, uh, I think I kind of had it in my mind as to what Jezreel meant, um, but I don't see it on my notes here. So, um, all right, so let's see. The Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jehu. All right, we're going to stop there because in this scripture here, we have a cross-reference um, to, uh, let's see, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 11. And Jeremiah, you opened that up, didn't you? 2 Kings 10, Chapter 11, uh, verse 11. Oh, okay, you went to 29. That's all right. I can get it open. I have. Um, no, I went to 2 Kings 10. Oh, you, yeah, but you're not at verse 11. You're at 29 and 30. I have I the whole chapter open. Oh, okay. Have Go the ahead whole and chapter read. Open. Good. Go ahead and read 11 then for us, all right? All right. Um, so Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men and his acquaintances and his priests, until he left him without a survivor. All right, so um, that's a I little also bit have of the hit. definition for Jezreel. Okay, what was the definition of what does the word name Jezreel mean? It means God will sow. 
Oh, that's right. God will sow. So um, he's either sowing, going to sow, in the Valley of Jezreel. And that's exactly what he does do. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. All right, so um, in First King, or Second Kings chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, uh, that's where you were going to go to next then, Jeremiah. And uh, so what, what we're doing here is we're laying the groundwork for what actually happened in Jezreel to get a, a little historical background. So go ahead, Jeremiah. Yeah. did not okay. depart yes uh, yeah I'm not hearing you you're not I am now okay I'll start over okay um, cool. 29 and 30 right However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart, even the golden calves that were at Bethel and that were at Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. All right. All right. I know what I did in my notes here. I got to back up a little bit here. We'll come back to that. I I got I had a I had something in my notes that I was going to go to a different part of my notes than I had. Jeremiah, go ahead and read that scripture there in Second Kings. Um, that's dealing more with the next verse, verse five. So I'm going to come back here for a minute um, on this uh, scripture in verse four. Second um, Kings fifteen. Second Kings fifteen. We're going to go to, which is part of what you just read, Jeremiah, I think, in 15 or in 10, 29, and 30. Um, yeah, all right. All right, so what Jeremiah read, I think I got my notes correct now. See, I don't sit at home and do this all day long and all night long and uh, get all my notes together for you guys. I got a chicken scratch here and chicken scratch there, and then I got to see if I can make sense of what I did. <laughs> all right, so anyhow, there at Second Kings 10, 29 and 30, again, you're getting the the history there, a little bit about the history of what happened in, in Jezreel. And 
before Second Kings 10, that's when uh, uh, Jehu had also slew Jehoram, which was Ahab's son, and, of course, Jezebel and so forth. And so he was given a commission by Elijah to go out and take care of uh, the house of Ahab. That was his, his instruction, was to take Ahab and the house of Ahab basically out. And so in the process of that, what you see in 29 and 30 was that the Lord said unto Jehu, because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in my eyes and has done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your children of your fourth to your fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So he's promising Jehu that he's going to have people to his sons are going to sit on on the throne for four generations. And there's a little bit of a controversy in the um, commentaries. Uh, he also went out and slew in chapter ten. Uh, 12, this is what it says in 2 Kings 10, 12. And he arose and departed and came to Samaria, and he was at the shearing house in the way. And Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the brethren of Ahaziah, and we go down to salute the children of the king and the children of the queen. And he said, Take them alive, and they took them alive and then slew them at the pit of the shearing house. Even 42 men, neither left he any of them. Some of the commentaries seem to be of the opinion that the reason that God is saying in the book of Hosea that he's going to avenge the blood of Jehu upon the house of, uh, or blood, avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu is because Jehu went beyond his commission and slew these 42 men here of the house of Ahaziah. And when I came across that, I thought, all right, I'm going to take a little time to go over that because I'm kind of surprised that it's left the way that it is in some of the commentaries. And what does this have to do with verse 4 in Hosea? understanding why it is that God is saying what he's saying through the prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter 1, verse 4. That's the reason. All right, so this Second uh, Kings 10, 12 to 14, uh, where these brethren are killed, the pulpit commentary indicated that Ewald, who's a history of, uh, writes a, a wrote a tract or a book called History of Israel, volume 4, page 100, he posits the idea that having met Jehu's forces, they passed off their purpose as a visit. Uh, The thought occurred to me at that time was, wait a minute, what if that was just a lie? What if those 42 were actually, while saying that they're actually of the house of Ahaziah, that would procure potential favor. Um, But I got to thinking, what if these are actually Jezebels? Okay, so this is just 
for what it's worth. This is not gospel. This is not scripture. I'm just throwing that out. That that was something that occurred to me just when I, I saw how um, this uh, author here had referred to it as they obviously, 42 princes, basically, and they're in full battle regalia, apparently. Um, and so how could they get this far into um, Israel land here and into this particular area, per se, and not know what was already happening in this region and to uh, King Ahab and, and so forth? And so um, there's nothing in the scripture that indicates anything about God's consideration regarding these 42. So is it significant or is it not significant? I, I think that it is somewhat significant in that it's as if many of the people in the commentaries think that this is why the scripture in Hosea 4 says he's avenging the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. But I don't believe that at all. I don't see that at all. What I see is that basically um, what you've got is just a figure of speech or the manner of speech of the time. Um, the word blood in this passage is number 1818 in Strong's. And the word also has blood guiltiness as a definition. And certainly, it has to do with the activity and the mind, well, blood guiltiness says that is it has to do with the activity of the mind and will and character or seat of emotions and passions. And when you think about this whole book of Hosea, we're talking about really the blood guiltiness of Israel and her whoredoms, and the activity of the mind, the activity of the will, the character, the seed of the emotions and passions. So I find this word blood could certainly be the avenging the blood guiltiness or the whoredoms of Jezreel, Jezreel, uh, of Jezreel because that's where they occurred. Remember that what happened here was the division, and the division of the house of Israel and the house of Judah was of God. And the division also occurred here where, or part of the division as to what happened here was that Jeroboam I began to reign. And in fear that Judah, that people were going to go up to Jerusalem to worship God and therefore he would lose the dominion over the ten tribes, he set up his own calves he changed the, the dates of worship, the um, Sabbath day, and essentially gave them idols to worship. And so I think this makes sense in the context of the scripture. Um, so the phrase, upon the house of Jehu, I believe means upon the house of Jehu, meaning it's going to happen in Jehu's time. It's going to happen, and since God said he was going to give him four generations to reign, then it's going to happen at the completion. Because remember, the, the 
Gomer met completion. So at the completion of this reign of Jehu was when this blood guiltiness, essentially, was going to be complete. So um, I clearly understand Jehu's mandate, 2 Kings 9, 7 and 8. Uh, yes, Jehu did go beyond the mandate in killing more than the house of Ahab, namely the king of, uh, of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, 2 Kings 9.26, and the 42. But there's also something else that I came across, and that was in 2 Chronicles. So in 2 Kings 10.11 and 17, it indicates that he, he, of all he slew, and it says, according to the saying of the Lord, which he, Yahweh, spoke to Elijah. 2 Kings 10, 18-28 records the killing of the prophets, the worshipers of Baal, and 2 Kings 29-32 specifically awards Jehu the merit of his four sons reigning with him himself, while he himself actually reigns for 28 years. But... In fact, for the 28 years that he reigned, there really isn't very much said about Jehu's reign. But it does record that he did not walk in the law of the Lord and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, 2 Kings 10, 29-31. So, as I said, in 2 Chronicles 22-7, it says, the destruction of Ahaziah uh, was of God by coming to Jehoram he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, verse 8, and he expounds upon the princes of Judah being the 42. Ahaziah was Jehoram's son, but his mother was Athaliah, daughter of Omri. At verse 22.3, it says, she was his counselor after Ahab died. So if nothing else, I get it that she, uh, the 42 were of Ahaziah, who did as the house, uh, who did as he was instructed to the house of Ahab, and in fact, Second Chronicles seems to indicate that these 42 were part of it. So all of this is the history regarding Jezreel. It's not my opinion. These are actual scriptures. This is actual events that occurred. I know it's a quick synopsis and so sometimes that's hard to follow but if you just go back into second kings there in those scriptures in chapter 10 pretty much the whole chapter of 10 and then um, go into second chronicles there chapter 22 you'll have the you know kings and chronicles are two parts of the same stories essentially uh, two different recorded locations and so I really think that it's quite possible that Jehu uh, knew that they were probably um, really lying were actually the house of, of, of Jezebel. Now, that's, like I said, that's just my supposition. I think that's why he did it. But even if he didn't do it for that reason, he did it for the reason that they were of Ahaziah because Ahaziah went essentially in league with Jehoram to, to battle, and so God certainly doesn't seem to indicate that he's got a problem with it. So I hope that that kind of helps as to that particular part of the scripture, and as I say, I think that in this context of the judgment pronounced, 
that God is pronouncing in the book of Hosea here, it seems pretty clear to me that it has to do with the whoredoms of Israel. It has to do with the whoredoms which began with Jeroboam 1 and continued with brief respites or corrections and direction, but not certainly a full correction. Even Jehu himself, the scripture says, he didn't walk fully in the ways of the Lord because he left those things uh, that Jeroboam had uh, stand instead of destroying them as well. So if he had made a full end to it, we would probably be reading something more about uh, Jehu. So while he enjoined Elisha's prophetic pronouncement upon Ahab, and but he didn't cease the practices that were started, you know, with the calves, the high places, and the new dates for the uh, uh, holy days and so forth. So the blood of Jezreel is a compounding of the sin, certainly, of the adulteration and idolatry, notably also King Omri, because Athaliah was a descendant of King Omri's house. And his, uh, um, uh, rather, Ahab was a descendant of Omri's house. So, you know, I think it's pretty clear that um, as far as this blood of Jezreel, Everybody seems, I don't know if everybody's following me, everybody seems to want to put the blood and they're trying to figure out why God is attributing the blood that occurred in Jezreel to, to this, to these events here that Jehu did. And I think the scripture is clear in both First Kings as well as Second Chronicles that that's not the problem. And Rich, you'd probably concur with me. I really think that the avenging of the blood has to do with the blood of the prophets that were slain by Jezebel. So yeah, I so I didn't come across that specifically. There may have been some other commentaries that I didn't get to because I only read pulpit commentary and I'm not even sure if I went on Gateway to even pull up Matthew Henry or because Matthew Henry is the only free one on there. So I, I just was kind of astounded that it seemed to be that there was this big argument about, you know, Jehu having shed some innocent blood or something. And I, and I just, I don't see it. I, I think that it has more to do with, um, uh, and I believe the scripture supports it. Like I say, you don't have to take my word for it. I'm just sharing with you. Because if we're going to understand what happened in Jezreel, and we're going to understand why <clears throat> it's being written here, um, then we need to understand that historical context. And so that's what I was trying to do, is bring some historical con back, context back to our mind. Now, well, all if... The, uh, all the uh, priests that Jezebel killed. Exactly. She, she killed the priests and, and the prophets, uh, well... Uh, who was it that hid the hundred of the prophets, or was it the priests um, in the cave? And um, so that that I believe is the bloodshed. Now, there's another issue, I guess, with that because um, I don't know how big the Valley of Jezreel is, um, but when Elijah slew the Baal prophets, um, that was at Mount Carmel, and Mount Carmel is about 50 miles, 50 kilometers from Jezreel. 
So that could be another reason why they don't want to attribute anything else to that. But as I say, when we were kind of, Jeremiah or I were kind of just trying to quick look for where the, where the priests of Yahweh were killed in 1 Kings, uh, we didn't come up with it, but somewhere preceding chapter 18 is when that occurred. And I don't know if there was a specific land mass associated with that. But suffice it to say, Ahab is king of Israel, and in this land of Jezreel is certainly where it's all part of the dominion. I think we could, you know, we could agree on that for sure. Did any of that make sense? Did you follow it, Isaac? Uh, yeah, I followed most of it. Uh, I do want to go back and read it, though, um, okay. on my own time, just to make sure I've got it all straightened out. Right, yeah, and and that's that's good to do for sure because that's what I'm suggesting that we do do is that, you know, I, I never ask people to take my word for it, but if I'm scripturally incorrect, incorrect at some point, then we want to correct it. All right, so, so we get to that situation there of uh, verse 4 in Hosea, and... The next thing is, is that he's going to cause to feast the kingdom of the house of Israel. <clears throat> okay, that's not an unimportant phrase either. And I have a scriptural cross reference there of 2 Kings 15, uh, verses 10 and 12. 2 Kings 15, verse 10 and 12. Are you still near there, Jeremiah? Or is anybody Second Kings King? Second Kings what? Second Kings fifteen verses ten and twelve. All right, I'm no, there. No, I'm there. All right, and uh, oh, I'm sixteen. Back one more. Okay, got it. Um. And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and smote him before the people and slew him and reigned in his stead. And the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, are they written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Thank Kings 15. Did I read that footnote right? Let me make sure I did, you guys. Sorry if I didn't. Uh, let's see. And will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Jehu. Second um, Kings 15. 10 and 12. Okay, yeah, I know what that is. Yeah, and then that cross-references to 29 and 30, 2 Kings 15, 29 and 30. And so what happens in 29 and 30, this is the thing I'm driving for. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took uh, Ajan and uh, Abelbeth Meachah and Genoa and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. And Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and smote him and slew him and reigned in his stead in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of, of Uzziah. So the important thing that I wanted to bring out here was 
this land, this land right here, uh, it says that in the days of this uh, Pika, this is when Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, took these areas into captivity. One of the areas, Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. And that land of Naphtali is once again something that we're going to come and find has great significance to what's happening here in Hosea chapter 4, or chapter 1, verse 4. It's at Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. It's actually 12 to 16. So I'm going to Matthew, and I'm looking at Matthew 4. And for context, we're just going to go ahead and read uh, 12 to 17. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt at Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the border of Zebulon and Naphtali, Naphtalim it says in King James that it might be fulfilled that was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, so you're going to go, Doug, how did you ever get over here? How did you ever wind up here? Well, I had a cross-reference in one of those scriptures in Kings, and it was at 2 Kings uh, 10, 29, and 30, and it referred to this Matthew chapter 4. So the importance is, I think it's, it's no accident that in this Gospel of Matthew, while he's leading the reader to a geographical understanding of Capernaum, he's also led of the Spirit of Yahweh to record that the land is in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Well, this was 700 years before Matthew wrote this, that Hosea spoke of this, which was referring to what had occurred in 2 Kings. So I hope you're following the connection. And it's not as disjointed as I'm probably making it appear because, as I say, these cross-reference and footnotes in the Bible are absolutely critical to having any you know, great understanding and be able to get into deeper study and so forth on this because it, it brings you back to periods of time and so forth and... Uh, I know Rich and, and his wife, they go over through a Bible, I think that's a chronological Bible. Uh, isn't that what you also, you guys also use? And I'm um, trying to think of which one I have that's like that. Rich, don't you kind of use? I don't see it here on my bookshelf behind me. But um, No, I was thinking that you you and Nancy often talked about you used like a, not a concordance one, but it was a chronological one. Am I thinking that correctly? Kind of takes it in phases of time. 
anyhow, not important, not important. But so anyhow, that's why sometimes it seems as if you're you're jumping all over, is because you're being taken back in history and then being brought forward in history and realizing that what Hosea was referring to in Hosea chapter 4 going on in Jezreel and where this land mass is, this is where they were taken into Assyrian captivity. This is where they were, this is where their darkness began. This is where they were cut off from God and they were taken into captivity. He had already divorced them. He'd already cast them away. He'd already told them. He'd pled with them and pled with them, pled with Israel and pled with Israel until he'd finally had it. And there they were going into Assyrian captivity, and it it records those first peoples that were to go into captivity. And as I say, right here in Matthew, as Christ begins his ministry, it says right there in verse 17, And from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who was he telling to repent? He was telling those people that were in and around the land of Naphtali, in and around the land of Galilee, in and around the land of Zebulun. Because even though they went into Assyrian captivity, this was 700 years later. Lots had changed. You don't think that some of those people of Israel had got back to those lands, those former lands that they had lived in, and were living amongst those that came in, namely the Assyrians and whomever else in the past 700 years? So I think it's significant, and I think that's a big part of it. And, of course, again, it's the scriptures that take you there. It's the scriptures that bring you around through it. Now, Matthew 4 that we're in, at verse 16, there's a reference to Isaiah 42.7 and Isaiah 35.5. Uh, 42.7 cross-references to 35.5. So remember, verse 16 there says, The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Why were they sitting in the shadow of death? They were sitting in the shadow of death because they had no uh, forgiveness for the sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. What is the penalty for sin? Death. So these were sitting in the darkness of that. They were sitting in that shadow of death. So it's no accident that it cross-references us to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7. Um, I'll go there real quick. I didn't write any of these down. I just wrote the scripture down. I didn't write them out. 42 verse 7, it says, To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. See, we've got the cross, and who who is this referring to? If we just go up, and this is where... God is calling Israel in righteousness in Isaiah chapter 42. So this is another prophetic uh, rendering here and record in Isaiah chapter 42. 
As I say, that scripture cross-referenced me to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. So, flipping over to Isaiah 35, verse 5, to see what it might give me for some additional information, this is what we have at Isaiah 35, 5. Somebody can go to 61, 1 if they want. Here's 35, 5. That's 36. All right, 35.5. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. So the sword's coming down, it's, it's, but it's bathed in heaven. The sword's coming down. It's coming down upon all Idumea and upon the people of my curse well, what happened when God pronounced his divorce? Was it not a curse? Were they not cast off? Did he not say that all those things would happen to them? That he, they would be taken out of favor with him? They would lose his name? Uh, and the most important scripture that Second Kings took us to as well um, so if somebody's at Isaiah 61.1, I'd like to go over to Isaiah 9.2. Somebody can read. I'm at 61.1. Go ahead, Isaac. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. All right, so right there, that's the same thing that Christ himself said was fulfilled. That's uh, Isaiah 61.1. That's what Christ was saying that was being fulfilled at that time so that, it, that that prophecy would be fulfilled by what Christ was doing there in Matthew chapter 4, 12 to 17. In Isaiah 9.2, um, very important. In fact, I'm going to start at 9.1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan in Galilee, in Galilee of the nation. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them has the light shined. It makes all the sense in the world. All of this is connected with those people called Israel. This prophecy here was a prophecy that they were going to they were going to have this glorious light. And we know this is what all of the apostles talked about was the glorious light that was being brought to Israel, being purged from their sin, being washed, cleansed, and new. Um, so this, you know, Second uh, Timothy 2.26, um, go there, somebody. I'm going to go to Hebrews 2.14 and 15. Again, these scriptures cross-referenced me to 2 Timothy 2.26 and Hebrews. Uh, 
2.14.15. I am going to read you 2.14.15. <clears throat> For as much then as the children are partaker, partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, of course, we know what the word devil there is. It's diabolos. And deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Once again, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he could destroy that which had the power of death. What has the power of death? Sin. Sin has the power of death. And deliver them who, the, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to the bondage of that. So, Right here, this is the same darkness. Anybody's got 2 Timothy 2.26. These are the same darknesses, the same shadow of left. This is where the first initial deport, intentional deportations were carried out by God right there in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this is what is exactly what is Christ's message. The people that were sitting in darkness under the shadow of death for their whoredoms and their sins light was springing up. Timothy 226. Uh, go, go for ahead, it. Jeremiah. Go ahead, Jeremiah. Okay. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Absolutely. Captive by the diabolos, the adversaries that have once again brought them into their whoredoms, the fornication that they had done with their idol worships and and their leagues, really. Um, I'm coming more and more convinced that there is so much more that has to do with these leagues that were going on nation to nation because Israel itself had actually um, even gone to Assyria to seek uh, favor and assistance from Assyria instead of seeking assistance from God. So one might be saying, well, why is this record of Matthew important? And, and the answer is simply this. This man, remember, he came as a man, like as we are. This Christ, this Messiah, the Emmanuel, he came here to this region in the Sea of Galilee right here, bringing to mind the events of seven centuries earlier, obviously still known in the land. And, of course, it comments and says, his works, quote, never so seen in Israel, end quote. So here, in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, the Redeemer would do just that. Let's flip over to Ezekiel 34. 11 to 15. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out 
from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. And that word country there, um, I didn't write down the meaning, but it means the world. That I will feed them in a pretty direct. That's very direct. I will feed them in a good pasture upon the high mountains of Israel. Shall be their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. Wow. I mean, see, yeah, it, said, it said their own land, and then it says what land that is. So it's acknowledging what people he's talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and frankly, that, that whole thing with the lands and um, inhabited places, the inhabited places of the world, or, you know, I forget, I forget uh, Rich, you might remember uh, when, um, when they used the word world, um, I'm trying to think of another scripture that it was used in, um, uh, and, the, and the word, do you recall it offhand? That's right. I didn't get the question. Well, the the word world, I, um, it's it, is it the cosmos or is that is that the word I'm thinking of the cosmos uh, equivalent to the world or is that cosmos like the age? All right, it's not relevant. Um, so anyhow, uh, you know, Isaac, it reminded me of just a few weeks ago when you had said to me as I had began to bring out the scripture in Matthew 10 about the commission that was given by Christ. And you, you, you countered with that you believe that commission changed. And I, all I wanted to do was just say at that time is that before we can even go there with whatever change in the commission there is, we really have to first acknowledge what Christ said they first must do. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Maybe more accurately, and, what I intended to say was that I think uh, the context, I think the context uh, changed. I think that he was talking about two different rules to two different uh, two different apostles. He was giving one set of instructions to uh, his apostles, and then. He gave an additional instruction. Not that it changed the first set, but that he gave additional instructions that were, you know, just in addition to what he had said before. I think that's my current understanding of that. So, well, now while I'm sitting here doing the research and putting some notes together on this, I don't know how it happened again, but all of a sudden I wound up with this quote. Um, you know, something I was doing on the internet or whatever, trying to, I was very curious about the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. And so I was really doing a lot and I was trying to find some old historic maps and stuff where I could learn where, where Zebulun, the tribe of Zebulun and the tribe of Naphtali were. And in the course of it, I think is when I came up with this, here was some article that had something to do with something. And here was a rabbi Avika. And this is what he said. And it was like, Lord, why'd you give me this? But hey, I'll accept it. And here's what it says. Quote, 
The ten tribes will have no share in the life of the world to come, end quote. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, what? The life to come? A life where what? I guess Jews, meaning ancient Pharisees, rule the world? Because this rabbi's statement ignores the New Testament, certainly. But just as Christ said of them, they do err. And he also says that they don't hear. And he also said, you've got the, the prophets and Moses, let them hear them. And so here the prophet Ezekiel we just quoted, where he says he's going to search his sheep from all the places where they've been scattered and the thick darkness that they've been under. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And this guy says the ten tribes will have no share in the life of the world to come. And we wonder why we are so mad inside ourselves when we hear things that we hear from people that say, well, the Jews are God's chosen people and we're just going to have to accept that. We can't understand why or whatever sometimes. And it's like, no, you don't understand. If indeed they are any people of Judah at all, which they themselves admit they are not, they say, strictly speaking, it is incorrect to call an ancient Hebrew a Jew or however it's written. It's in the Encyclopedia Judaica or whatever it is. I can pull it out for you if you need it. But so I just quoted Ezekiel, and that's not the only one. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of them. Um, he obviously rejects it. Um, in Matthew 19, 28, this son of God says that he shall sit on his glorious throne, and they which followed him would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And this idiot, to put it mildly, is telling me the 10 tribes will have no share in the life of the world to come? What planet is he on? That's Rabbi Avika, A-V-I-K-A. Jupiter. Yeah. You know, another thing occurred to me about that when I was making the notes here. You know, they hadn't, in this scripture in Matthew 19.28, and I guess that's what I wrote. I wrote, that was almost, I said, at this time, Israel had not been 12. Yeah, okay, that's why I wrote that. Because I remembered that that was almost a thousand years. So when Christ says those words in Matthew 19, 28, those 12 tribes of Israel had not even been referred to as 12 tribes of Israel for almost a thousand years, 950 plus, give or take. 750 years since God had delivered them into the Assyrian captivity alone. And there was Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, talking to him just like it was yesterday. Hey, folks, I'm here. Light is here. I just felt that that was just really 
encouraging for me and um, you know that happens I think when when we really get into the word and study it and um, uh, it just the Lord has a way of just really blessing your labors you know hey Russell good evening hello I've got that definition of world if you want it okay go uh, in Old English, it means human existence, the affairs of life, also a long period of time, the human race, mankind, humanity. And there's a lot more here. Originally, life on earth, this world as opposed to the afterlife sense extended to the known world. So I don't know where you, what context you were reading this in. But the original sense of the word meant world without end, translating Latin secula seculorum, worldly. Latin seculum means both age and world. Greek word is eon, meaning a great quantity or number. Yeah, that's the word I was remember. That's the word I was remembering. Eon, eon of time. <laughs> Or an so, eon of fans. Yeah. Well, all right. Now that's pretty much what I had on Hosea chapter 4, uh, recapping the verse, uh, or Hosea 1, verse 4. I'm, I'm still saying that. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. So again, I believe that is what's actually being stated here is not exactly the way I see some of the commentators that have written it. Now, again, I'm not a scholar, but I think when you take your time and you read through this, and even reading the, the notes from the commentaries, uh, I think it shows the humanity that we all are, is that some things are a little bit difficult to pin down. But in this case here, I really don't know what the controversy should be. It seems as if, as I indicated, the controversy here in four is that blood is, uh, God is avenging the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. And I don't believe that's exactly what that scripture is inferring or implying. I don't believe that it's implying that God is avenging the bloodshed that Jehu shed in Jezreel. I believe it's just that he's indicating it's going to happen within the period of Jehu's reign, which would include the four sons that God said were going to reign after him because he executed the vengeance of God upon the house of Ahab. I don't believe it had anything to do with the 42 princes that came. I think Jehu may have had a belief. Not only was he justified if they were, in fact, um, uh, the, uh, the king, what was the king's name? Ahaziah. A- a- even if they were, in fact, relatives of Ahaziah, um, he still, according to Second Chronicles, 
uh, did exactly what was within the commission because Ahaziah had linked himself with Jehoram and Ahab uh, to come to battle against Jehu for uh, carrying out a prophetic command uh, against the house of Ahab. So I don't see the controversy with it all, and I believe that it clearly is just conveying this blood of Jezreel, I believe, is blood either, number one, it's blood guiltiness, because that blood has both definitions. It would be the blood guiltiness of Israel for the whoredoms that occurred in this land, in Jezreel, under Jeroboam one, after God had split the kingdoms, Jeroboam one said, hey, I'm going to change dates. You're now going to worship on this day. You're not going to go up to Jerusalem. You're going to do it right here, and there's your gods, these two calves. And that is, and of course, the blood that, that uh, Jezebel shed. And we might not forget the blood of righteous Naboth. Now, maybe I shouldn't have said righteous, but in God's eyes, he clearly didn't do anything and um, was entitled to his inheritance of his land. And that's equivalent of removing the landmark. Right, Rich? Well, he stole stole his inheritance. Right, he stole his inheritance. That's the extent the boundary stones, though. Yeah. God says that, you know, the, there's a curse be the man that removes another man's boundary. And this was clearly Naboth's vineyard. And when he asked him to give it up, he said, I'm not giving up my inheritance. And so Jezebel saw to it. So I think two things. It's the blood of Naboth. I believe it's the blood of the priests. Uh, that God is referring to here. I don't think there should be any controversy about that verse at all. So I didn't mean to bring the controversy out to throw a lot of confusion. I just also feel like sometimes I need to share that uh, as well because it shows that, hey, man doesn't have everything in this thing figured out all the time, but a lot of the people did some very good work. And so here we sit doing our work, to study it out and see what we can learn as well and see where we might need to, uh, uh, you know, think things through a little bit more. All right, I'm going to quick flip over to uh, uh, verse Well, you know, five. I was just thinking the, uh, the blood of the innocents, too, because they had uh, Elijah took out 450 bail trees and they uh, practiced child sacrifice. And it was probably the blood of the innocent babies, too. You know, that's a good point, because I was trying to think that through, you know, throughout the day yesterday and today as to whether or not, um, and then Jeremiah and I started quick looking for where Jezebel had killed the the priests, because I wasn't sure if it was right here in this land of Jezreel. But the more I think about it, it's the whole valley of Jezreel. It's the whole this whole land mass region and stuff. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think when you think about the sacrifices of, of, the, uh, um, of the children and so forth on the altars of Baal, absolutely. So I think it encompasses... It's a forerunner of what's going to happen to all the abortionists. Yeah, exactly. You know... 
And that begs the question, you know, because I thought about this a lot this week. What we just went through here in just a short, quick, historical rendezvous, it does, you see, God had given a commission to Jehu, to Elisha, to give to Jehu to go execute a plan on behalf of God. In other words, God at times will execute on his own using his own divine power, such as an angel taking out 180,000 who tried to go up against Judah. And God's, no, you're not going any farther. And that was under King Hezekiah, I think, right? I think it was Jehoshaphat. Or Jehoshaphat, okay. So, so, you know, and in this case here, he commissioned Jehu to go out and execute on the house of Ahab, the judgment and the retribution for the Lord. And you know why I think that he did that? Think about this, you guys. Sometimes I think God wants to just see if somebody who has a zeal for him really has the zeal that he needs him to have. Are you following me? So in this case of Jehu, Jehu had the zeal, but he would not tear down those high places and tear down those calves that Jeroboam would put up. And so I think that sometimes that's why God chooses a man to see if that man will follow after God holy or if he won't. And then the next follows. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that, you know what's that makes sense. What was that? I was going to say, you know what's interesting is that uh, Elijah took out 450 Baal priests. That's pretty close to the uh, the number of the uh, congressmen and the uh, senators in the United States. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's a very interesting thing, too. Um, what is their... Uh, uh, the hundred in the Senate, and yeah, it's four hundred and thirty something, isn't it? Something like that. Check that out, Jeremiah. How many in the Congress? House of Representatives. How many? Four hundred and thirty-five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Must have lost a couple in translation, or gained a couple. What? What? What do we lose? Uh, the uh, the count changed in translation somewhere. <clears throat> oh, oh! Did I misstate something? No, 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 no. I'm just saying that 
No, I'm not being serious. Oh, okay, gotcha. It's just the 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 Bible got uh, edited slightly. Oh yeah, well, well, uh, no, he's just, I yeah, I get what you're saying, but hey, it could be 500, and and in fact, you know, just because it was 400 and uh, was it how many was it Elijah's day? Rich, 400 and what? 450, I think. Okay. So just because it was 450 there doesn't mean that it can't be 435. And, and again, you know, I, am, I like what Jehu did. Go read that account in Second Kings, you guys. Jehu calls everybody in and says, we're going to worship Baal. Not only did Ahab worship Baal, we're really going to worship Baal now. Calls them all into an assembly to worship Baal. And when he gets them all in there, he goes outside and says to the captains and says, if anybody in that room escapes, your life is over. <laughs> well, he also double-checked to make sure that none of the prophets of God were in there. Yeah, he did. He did do that indeed. Um, but how, how, that's just, it's so classic to me. It's just, it's worth a chuckle. It's like, you know, our, our Lord, you know, and there was a man using his own intellect and his own zeal for the Lord to carry out what was right. And it wasn't hard to ensure who was a Baal priest and who wasn't, was it? And, and I think even one of those people was even, I don't know if it was in... Uh, uh, what's the other commentary? Um, I read another commentary on something else uh, dealing with this, and I even got the sense that they were kind of indicating that Jehu's, uh, you know, went beyond the commission because he killed the the uh, the prophets of Baal. Um, yeah, I did. That was in one of the other commentaries that seemed to indicate that they thought that that was probably uh, beyond the commission. And I don't see anything in the biblical record that God had any problem with that. You know, there's nothing in there that's... In fact, if you're honest with the scripture, he actually tells us that he was pleased with Jehu for what he did in executing fully on the house of Ahab. And he didn't say... I'm not going to give you your 28 years. He gave him 28 years to reign and then gave reigning over of, of his four sons, even though, albeit some of them were short-lived, um, hey, he, he fulfilled what he told, you know, he can't help it that there's bad men out there that do bad things, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think there was actually more than more than the 450 killed, because I thought that Elijah killed the 450 at the Brook of Kidron, and then the whole slew of the other ones were taken out in a meeting there with Jehu. Yeah. I think that was two separate occasions of killing bail priests. All right, well, let me take uh, Hosea 1.5 because I only had a couple notes on it, and then we'll close it out and we'll get into verse 6 then next week. Hosea 1.5. In this verse, uh, what we have is 
It shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And, you know, I I guess I didn't know what to make of that. So, I, I mean, I, I get the sense of it. But I thought, well, I'm going to start looking up words. So I did. I looked up the word bow. I'm going to break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So bow is number 7198. From It's derived from 7185, and it means to be hardened, stiff-necked, difficult. So Yahweh is going to break the stiff-necked, difficult, hardened Israelites in the valley of Jezreel. <laughs> right where her hordens had proceeded from, there's Christ, the Emmanuel, in the same region to begin his ministry to show them the love that he had, the love that he has for them just as was conveyed in Matthew chapter 4. It's only just beginning, is what I wrote in my notes. And I think it really is just beginning. This book of Hosea, I started studying on it probably six months ago or so, and I would just flip through, you know, three or four pages, which would be three or four chapters or something from time to time, and just getting lost in the cross-references and everything. And, and I really am convinced that it truly is. He is the prophet. He is the prophet of the greatest love story of the ages. And I believe he really... I was reading some of the commentaries about people and they write about Hosea. And of course, they're all really scholarly. And you see, Hosea writes in a very disjointed and nothing seems to go together. He seems to be more passionate or he's in the fit of rage or he's in the fit of a passion. You know, as if to say that his household is in disarray. And so he just one day sits down and he writes a few more lines. And, you know, <laughs> I was just sitting there reading some of that and I'm like, why do I even bother going to these things sometimes? Um, I don't know if you guys find that the same way, but I'll tell you, some of the, the commentaries and stuff, it's as if they're so scholarly, they just want to throw the baby out because the bathwater got cold, you know? I, I just, I don't know. It's kind of funny from time to time. So I always read them and just recognize that, hey, you know, it was a man's a man's thought, a man's commentary on what you're reading. And while in some instances they can be extremely helpful, um, I really find the footnotes in my Bible uh, more beneficial to me than anything else that I can, you know, I can lay my hands on. What about you, Rich? Yeah, that's what I like about 1599 Geneva. It's uh, got some great footnotes in it. Yeah, it does. Yeah. 
Well, that was Hosea chapter 4, or Hosea chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 in this fourth part of the series. And as I say, Hosea 3 that I uploaded and just recorded, I felt like that was a lot of uh, stuff that was probably known and certainly is known by just about all of us, but that it would be a good recap. And I did get one indication that, yeah, it was a kind of a, uh, a nice little concise, you know, put together, um, you know, history lesson, if you will, uh, about the betrothal of God with his bride, Israel, and the marriage, and then subsequently a divorce and a, a re-betrothal and a remarriage. So while we are going to dovetail in and out of what's actually going on in in part three, throughout the rest of the fellowship series on Hosea, there's, um, you know, clearly, as I say, we're going to be, you know, dovetailing back and forth between that marriage and betrothal and divorce and remarriage and re-betrothal. But I just felt like it would be good to maybe put that out there as a separate one and kind of try to put the notes together to make it as concise as I could. Uh, so I, I've had uh, a number of, uh, a couple of emails, and there's been a number of downloads to that that audio that are indicating that it's been helpful. So, um, so anyhow, that's good to hear always. So that it's doing some good and it's making some sense, and and uh, it's going to be helpful. So, anyhow, with that, I guess we'll close in prayer. And uh, Rich, why don't you close in prayer for us? Okay. Oh, we thank you, Lord God, for your blessings, for your word, for your, your nourishment of feeding us, your words. We glorify and praise you, Father. And Father, it's time that some of these Baal priests take a, take a hike down to the River Kidron. All these abortionists and all the blood in the land, Father, cries out from the land that you would quench it. Without, there have been over 40 million abortions, 40 million voices crying out for justice. We ask your Holy Father to take them out. Let your wrath fall down upon them. Let their wives be widows. Let their children be orphans. Let them beg in the streets and be no more in this generation. Heavenly Father, take out your righteous judgment upon your enemies and our enemies. In the name of Jesus, we thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I, you know, we, we've got a river Potomac, Father. And um, if it be your will, Father, we, uh, we just need you to say the word and give the direction to your Jehu here in America and bring those prophets of Baal into the house and uh, make that discernment and the separation of those that are with the with you. And Father, I know that we've got a lot of repentance to do. Um, and Father, I see in your word many times that your your people did not come to a full repentance while you still carried out your will through your handymen. And so, Father, we pray that 
that you find in our midst, the handymen that carry it out, and you bring the word of the Lord that there's no mistaking it. It's not self-willed, but it's within your will. It's within your divine purpose and with your divine commission. So we do pray for that, Father. We pray for all of yours, wherever they are throughout the world. Father, we know that the enemy has crept in amongst us. We know, Father, that they have enslaved our nation in a mountain of debt. And nations all over of your people are burdened with this debt. So, Father, we do pray for your people to hear your words and to come out of it. And, Father, we pray that you will bless this message and and all the years that hear it, that it will be uh, fruitful to their ears and that it will be food for their soul and enlightening them in the word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to be where two or more are gathered and to find you in our midst, and we thank you for that. Pray for our children and our children's children. We pray for those that are with child now, asking that you continue to protect them and guide them. We put that hedge of thorns all around them. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, all right, man. Good to have you. We'll go at it next week. All right. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night.